I'm Helen Marshall, and this is the Diary of a CLO. I hope no one's listening, but if you are, definitely share it. In this episode, I'm joined by Kathy Hoy, who is the co-founder and CEO of CLO 100, a learning leaders program that is dedicated to upskilling future learning leaders. It's something that is drastically needed across the industry, and it's so exciting to watch this program evolve, and I can't wait to see the impact that it's going to have on our communities. Kathy is one of those people you could talk to for hours, as she has such a depth of passion and experience, from leading learning and development teams at places like Soho House and Coca-Cola, to Expedia and Tesco. She's hugely curious about how we, as L&D professionals, can continually better ourselves. It's a great conversation. Enjoy. Kathy, hi, and welcome to Diary of a CLO. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Um, thank you very much for having me on your podcast. I love your podcast. <laughs> That's no problem. Thank you for coming. We know each other fairly well, but I'm always really intrigued every time you start talking about your past experience and, and your roles that you've had previously. I'd love to know, digging straight into it, you know, a bit about your journey and I guess where you got to today, obviously your founder of CLO 100. How did you get to that point? Because I think you've, you've got a rich history of different roles and different sectors and businesses. And I'm sure our listeners would, would love to hear about it. Yeah, good question. I suppose, and I and I feel a bit disappointed saying this, but I do think it's quite common in our industry. I, I kind of fell into learning and development. It was a bit of an accident. I really wish at, at some point that changes and more people can actively sort of opt into our profession, I guess. It wasn't something that was ever spoken about when I was at school or college or anything. It's, it's never on the kind of careers library list. I think the, the ideal job for me when I left school was a freight forwarder. So I still don't really know what one of those is. You know, I didn't go to university. I kind of left the education system after college. I loved college, but I really wanted to, I guess, work. I wanted to earn money. I never really had any money kind of growing up. And I think, you know, I I grew up with just myself and my mum and she worked super hard, but I think that it kind of became really important to me. And so just being able to work was really exciting. And when I was at college, I had like three part-time jobs. Two of them were in retail and one was in telesales at the time. Anyone that knows me will know that is, is not my strong point. It was a great experience and I would kind of straddle that along with kind of going to college as well. And I really did love college and I felt like it was so much more freeing than school. I never really enjoyed school. I don't, certainly then I didn't really rate the the way things were structured I wasn't excited about it but college was so different you got to to choose to be there and, and you could pick the topics that you wanted to study and I studied well probably a loose term studied business studies and psychology and the first one was like obvious I was always going to be you know doing that because I, I loved business studies at school it was probably the only thing that kept me captivated actually but the second was a bit more of a surprise to me I guess recently been thinking about that and wondering why I ended up picking it and I think there are two reasons and one is my my mum so when I was very young I grew up in the South Pacific and My mum and dad separated, I think I was probably about four at the time. And me and my mum came back to the UK. She decided she wanted to kind of provide a better life for herself, but probably I guess I was a a big motivating factor for her as well. So she decided to go back to university and, and, you know, she had me quite late in life back then. So she was going to university in her late forties. She wanted to be a social worker. So she was studying psychology, sociology. And I, I suppose I just heard about it so much growing up and we'd have really interesting conversations about behavior and and 
the brain and just human beings and uh, like really interesting conversations, probably very different to most of my mates' conversations with their families actually at the time. Um, so I think she was a, a massive influence. I remember going to this induction day at college and I was, I was, I was dead set. It was going to be business studies and it was going to be marketing. And I was like, absolutely doing this. And then I attended the induction day uh, and the session on psychology and the woman that ended up being my teacher, her name is Kerry Pringle. She was just the most engaging, exciting person you could ever meet. And I just thought, whatever she's teaching, I'm doing it. And so that was kind of it, really. And I loved psychology. I, you know, I loved learning how the brain worked. I thought it was fascinating. And it's just so powerful. And we just don't know enough about it at all. There were kind of two things in particular that always stood out. One was around kind of twin studies. And the other was sleep deprivation. I think both like were super important to me and I was really fascinated with them. The twin studies though, that the conversation around nature nurture and which was the most powerful and impactful on, you know, our lives and our decision making. I, I just thought this was absolutely brilliant. I was I was besotted with it. And, it, and again, really linked to, to kind of how the brain works. And it was also like a conversation I could have with my mum at home in the evenings, which, which was great. So I definitely wanted to learn more at that point about kind of the human brain and how we work. But, you know, as I said, learning and development wasn't really a thing. I loved retail. I loved my retail jobs. One of them was Debenhams. And I think by the time I left college, I was, gosh, uh, yeah, so I was probably managing the lingerie department in Debenhams when I was 19. And I had a team of about 15 women. I just loved the idea of, I guess, learning about our products. And I'd run these like little mini product sessions. I'd get some of the reps in. I'd get, you know, samples for all the all the women on the team. And, and we'd learn much more about the products. And, and I was just, I really enjoyed how people people I guess started to like their jobs more they they were doing better they knew more about the product I love that and they were happier our customers were happier and of course you know it made Debenhams more money as well and so I guess that's kind of where I started in learning although it wasn't called learning and and I don't even think I don't think there was even an L&D team there but since then I, I kind of deliberately moved into L&D roles and really wanting to explore more I suppose about what they entail. And, and I've been so, so privileged and lucky to work for some amazing organizations. You've probably had me mention before, but, you know, I worked at Tesco and Expedia, Coca-Cola. And I think honestly, probably the, the best experience and, and where I grew most professionally was with Tesco. It was my first global role. And anyone that's worked or does still work in a global role will know the challenges you have. I mean, you just can't compare them to anything else in, you know, a UK only based role. It's it's fascinating. And actually, my first sort of stint was six weeks in South Korea. It was it was wonderful. It was like mind blowing. I was working with a wonderful manager at the time, Jane Smith. She was brilliant. She had a really holistic kind of management style and I was supporting her setting up this massive physical academy in South Korea. I think Tesco had spent something like 30 million on it. You know, it was it was wonderful to be part of. It was a purpose built training venue, I guess. We had amphitheaters, translation booths, you know, floor to ceiling, right on walls. It was it was absolutely amazing to see that. And I'd never seen, you know, kind of anything like that. And it was probably around that time, I, I was probably early 30s, late 20s, yeah, probably early 30s. And I was diagnosed with mild dyslexia. I remember, again, that meant I had to learn more about, you know, the brain. And I had to learn specifically about my brain and what I needed from that. And I had this brilliant mentor, Paul Dunn. He was just fascinating. He helped me so much. He was dyslexic himself. He developed me massively. I learned so much about neuroscience from him, about how adults actually learn. It suddenly wasn't just training, in inverted commas, anymore. It was about 
helping adults develop and, and what was the best way we could do that? How can we make use of our knowledge of how the brain works? And believe me, I'm, I'm not an expert in this space. I'm pleased to see that there are people that are, but that, you know, that's not me. But I, I knew enough to know that it was more about you know, the design and delivery of a program. There was a whole lot more going on. And yeah, it was fascinating. And I guess that's kind of why I, I just really decided I, I needed to stay in that area in learning development. And, you know, I managed a number of teams after that in different companies. And I think now, yeah, we're just in a really exciting place with the new business and, and yeah, kind of excited about moving forward, really. And we'll dig into CLA 100 uh, more, obviously, as, as we go on. I mean, there's so much just based on what you were saying there, Kathy, that I, that I want to dig into. Um, just to list them off, the things that the things that really stood out to me as you were speaking there was transitioning into L&D or being aware of L&D as a field that you can enter into from college or university or straight into the working environment. But then also, what does learning and development mean within a business? How do you put a label on what learning is within an organisation as well? Female mentorship or leadership within your own career? You called out a couple of people there, Jane and Kerry, I think mentioned the specific names so I think that would be really interesting to talk about and then kind of how we learn as well and why we should be dedicating more time to learning because as you say I'm not an expert in that either you're not an expert in that but just understanding that we need to dedicate time to our own skills but also understanding that kind of the concept of how we actually go about learning and how that affects what we learn so yeah loads to dig into there like I said but also we will as I said get on to CLO 100 and talk about that a little bit more but just to go right back to the beginning of what you were saying there, if you're thinking about how people take that first step into the L&D space, because what I'm seeing at the moment is, although I think you're still right that people aren't necessarily aware that learning and development could be a lucrative career for some people, but actually what we're seeing is a lot of teachers are suddenly thinking, actually, how do I utilise my skills that I have from teaching within a business or private sector field? And I don't know if you're seeing that as well, because, you know, it seems to be quite common at the moment that it's what do I do next? And that, and that it seems to be a direct route into L&D. Yeah, I have seen that, actually. And, you know, I think on the whole as well, that the pay's better, right? I mean, in particularly in kind of big corporates, in global corporate roles, you're often on kind of up to six figure salaries. I mean, you just don't get that in teaching. You absolutely absolutely should get that in teaching. I think, yeah, teachers are massively underrated, frankly. And whilst it is different, clearly, you know, the way you teach kids in terms of just the, the way the brain works and, and, and what kids need versus versus adults, it absolutely puts you in a great place to move into our industry. I think a lot of it, I don't know, I, I, because even now I've got kind of younger nephews and nieces who are sort of early 20s and I I talk to them about what I do and, and a lot of them are in, you know, kind of large organizations, but there's still no awareness of learning and development, you know, and none of them are in a learning and development role, but it sort of surprises me that L&D doesn't seem to have a, a presence and these are quite big businesses they're working in. So I don't know. I think there's, yeah, there's a lack of awareness about it. I also think people sort of still have this assumption that if you join a training team, then you're either designing training or you're delivering training. And that's just way too simplistic. You know, there are so many amazing roles in, in L&D or there, there certainly should be. So yeah, I, I do think there's a lack of awareness probably in that, you know, we're great at talking about it internally in our own industry and we can all pat ourselves on the back for, you know, talking about it and, and creating a, a discussion around it. But how many people outside of learning and development listen to what we say and, and how often do we actually attempt to speak to people outside of our industry about it? So yeah, there's definitely, definitely an education piece needed. And, and yeah, I'd love to see people opting this as a, as a kind of career move. 
Yeah, and I think you're right, that kind of interdisciplinary approach to what we do is really important. And I've seen, you know, certain publications within the industry that try to lean on that external influence and ideas from outside our sphere and, and, and our bubble. And I think it, it, it is really important to be able to do that. I had a conversation with a friend the other day who worked for the prison service, and I was talking about how important psychological safety must be for, for them and their role and the team that, that she works with. And she was like, what, what psychological safety? I've never, I've never heard that term before. And that was a real kind of moment where I thought these are terms, there must be so many different terms and terminology that you're using on a daily basis within the, the sphere of L&D that actually do they have a practical application outside of that word would and it, and it will in different sectors, but it just didn't resonate with her and, and her role. Although once we got into it, it turned out that it, she did it, she just didn't know what the, the term itself meant so yeah that that was a kind of a step back moment thinking exactly about that bubble of like what are we doing in, in our field and how can we look outside of it and relate what we're doing to it too when you mentioned your role at Debenhams there that what really struck me is that you know you didn't have a title of anything to do with L&D but actually what you were doing was upskilling your team on certain products and it from Thrive's perspective we know that all the retailers, well, most of the retailers we work with do exactly that and utilize Thrive in order to do that. So it's really interesting how a company then defines what learning is or when learning happens or what those learning moments are within business. Do you think that's something that's still thought about or even not thought about and not really known about? I don't know. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I, basically, my role was, um, I was like a department supervisor, I guess. And everything sat with you you know I mean the thought of that now kind of going back and being 18 and being told here you go you're running this function you've got these figures that you need to meet these are your store plan layouts you're responsible for them uh you need to manage kind of theft and stock count you need to manage the rotors for your team I mean baffling I, I probably couldn't do it now but I know I enjoyed doing it then everything just sat with you so if you know your sales were down you had to look at well why are my sales down uh maybe my team don't feel comfortable talking to customers about about the product I don't know and I was never one to go down the kind of traditional sales skills route I suppose I might have been bad experience in the telesales job I had when I was at college but I always put sales in this really weird space and so I thought no 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 we won't we won't do that we'll do product training we'll get to know all the products and it was actually really great because I got to build relationships with head office I'd phone them and say look who are our reps for you know this brand that brand and the reps were more than happy to come in you know help train and, and it was great but yeah it was nothing really structured or formal about it at all it just it just needed to happen um and you know I enjoyed it at the end of the day um which was kind of the main thing and someone doing that within a retail environment now is is almost like the dream for anyone working in L&D for a retailer thinking that people are empowered to be able to start doing that and understand that what they're doing is providing more confidence to their staff and it ultimately will impact sales and create a better customer service experience at the end of the day and that's seems like an ideal that that people try and get to so you must have been a dream for about if there was an L&D team they were thinking yep she's a good one (laughs) (laughs) yeah maybe Obviously, you did mention there a couple of names that you've called out, but had you noticed that female mentorship has played a role in in your career up until now? Is that something you you were conscious of? Or yeah, very much so. I mean, my my mum, 
my mum brought me up to be a, a staunch feminist uh, from a very young age. Uh, I, I remember calling one of her friends out, male friends out at the age of, I think I was seven or eight, because I found that he, I decided he'd said something that was sexist. And I remember just calling him out. And my mum, I think the look on her face was a mix of, oh my God, I can't believe you've just done that in public. And wow, she's just done that in public. <laughs> so I think, I think kind of mixed feelings for her, but yeah, she's always made me very aware. And I suppose weirdly, if you grow up in a in an environment or a home where actually you're told constantly you can do anything you want to do, you know, and she was very much, very much of that message. And she would always tell me that as long as I wanted something enough, then then I, I would get it. I could do it. But I, I had to want it enough. She used to try and, you know, tell me about female role models. She would always impress upon me the, I guess, imbalance in society, really from a very, a very young age. So yeah, she she made that really important for me. And I've definitely had some, I've had really good male and, and female mentors and role models. But yeah, I had a, a wonderful executive coach once, Grace Owen. She was kind of helped me more from a life coaching perspective, actually. Really wonderful woman and so knowledgeable. But yeah, Jane Smith, a previous manager. You know, I've always had challenging relationships with managers, with my leaders, uh, for various reasons. Jane knew how to work with me. She knew that actually to get the best out of me was to basically leave me alone and let me get on with it. And, you know, her role in, in, in our relationship was to remove the barriers and just let me go full steam ahead. And I'd never found anyone that understood how to kind of, I suppose, manage me um, until then. And she was also very focused on the more holistic side of her team. So your well-being. Are you taking enough rest? Are you, you know, are you getting enough sleep, enough exercise? And again, I'd never had that before either. And we're going back now about 12 years. So I think she was really, you know, a lot of people talk about this now and have been for the last sort of five, six years or so, um, maybe longer, but I really feel she was just naturally doing it um, at the time anyway. And, and, and yeah, I mean, what more of a fabulous role model could you hope for in a, in a leader, really? Mm, you picked up on something really interesting there as well, in terms of how a manager should alter their management style based on the needs of the individual they're managing whereas I think an error that a lot of people make is to say this is the type of manager I want to be and this is how I'm going to run this team yeah. I suppose there's a time and a place for that kind of management but also it, it feels like you'd be so much more successful tailoring the needs of your individual team member yeah. and understanding what they need and how you can respond to them God, absolutely I'm, I'm a massive believer in that I think really your your role when you're leading a team is it, well actually it probably is similar to what Jane used to do you know it's get rid of all the blockers the barriers connect your team to the right people you know be the connector because you'll know people in the business they probably don't know where to go who to go to quickly and yeah definitely tailor your style you know some people want a more hands-on approach some people that I've worked, I've worked with previously have said to me look I, I literally need you to phone me every morning and just give me a bit of a kick out the bum I genuinely need it I know I shouldn't but I need it fine I'm happy with that others you know you, you don't hear from for weeks but you know stuff's going on because you kind of see the results of that big believer in that actually so let's talk about CLO 100 a little bit. Can you tell me how, I guess, how that started and where this, like, I suppose the seed of that idea came from and where you are now on that journey? Yeah. Ooh, wow. So I suppose that there are a few things, really. There's the fact that I'd been in this the sort of roles of leading learning and development teams. I could granted maybe, you know, the, the title was very rarely a CLO and actually the roles very rarely sat at that level either. And so they were head of learning, essentially the person accountable for learning, right, in the organization. And there never seemed to be anything, I suppose, that was that felt relevant to me. You know, I, I didn't need at, at that stage in my career to go through design and development skills. I get that that's needed along the journey in, in different roles that you're doing. But 
when you're having to meet with the C-suite on a regular basis, when you're coming up with a strategy and essentially you're the person responsible for building the skills, the capabilities, the behaviors in your organization to make sure the organization succeeds and, and meets its goals, there's a lot of pressure there. And there's there's a lot of stuff you need to know. And, you know, I just kind of had to, I suppose, learn stuff on the job. I wouldn't say I did ever anything perfectly at all I had again some brilliant people that supported me a couple of them actually were kind of external partners and and suppliers in different companies one person in particular actually Sonia Johnson at Quantic she's always been so supportive of me but I've learned so much from her and actually working with her it taught me a lot about actually it's, it's really best to be kind of open and honest with your external suppliers and partners you know talk to them about your strategy give them the full picture because they can help you better you know have the awkward budget conversation let them know what there is uh, at the start it, it, it just makes for a much better relationship so I learned a lot a lot from her so yeah I was very mindful that there wasn't really anything I guess structured in place at that level I think the thing that people used to talk about with CIPD which is great and I know a lot of people that have done their their kind of level seven it was never going to be a route for me it's too I suppose it's too kind of assessment academic based for me it's not really I'm not going to be able to do that and I certainly probably wouldn't have the time to put into that um equally I found that CIPD generally was a bit more sort of HR focus a, a bit more broader than L&D and I wanted something that was very specific so if you're a learning leader you have a program specifically for you that was the the kind of really big draw you know, it's a very adult, adult approach as well. You know, there's no kind of mandatory modules. People have the, the development journey and, and as part of their onboarding process will identify the things that are going to add most value to them. But really the, what's made this program, I think, is the people involved. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm just so grateful. We have the most amazing list of people involved. I mean, helping shape this, you know, like Laura Overton, Charles Jennings, Nathan Nala, Julie Dreiber, Jeremy Snape. I mean, th- these are amazing people that bring absolute tons of, of knowledge. And it's that that's kind of shaping the programme, I guess. And it's just been a really, really exciting journey so far. The concept itself is something quite unique in the industry too, born of the idea that, like you say, there needed to be something that wasn't quite so academic and assessment focused as CIPD, but then also that heads of learning or people within similar positions aren't necessarily dedicating the time that they need to their own skills whilst they're focusing on on other people as well. Oh my God, definitely. I mean, I'm not, I'm not really one for analogies. I've worked globally for too long to know they don't translate very well, but it really is an issue of kind of cobbler's shoes in L&D and we've just got to get over this. It's fascinating. You know, we spend all our time investing in making sure that we're equipping the business to be the best they can be and we're forgetting ourselves. And I don't even think most people are taking the time to just take a breath and look up from their laptop on a daily basis to see what's coming around the corner. But we've got to be prepared for that. I mean, surely we have to lead by example. If we want everyone else to take learning and development seriously, we have to start, I think, with that. It's been really interesting having all the conversations I'm having with people that are signing up to the programme because people are in very different sort of stages when I speak to them. And some, you know, will tell me that actually they haven't invested in their own development for nearly 10 years. Others are feeling kind of guilty, I think, about spending some of their learning budget on them because they're not going to then be able to spend it on, on their team or the organisation. It's, it's really interesting. I mean, clearly not everybody. And, and luckily, most people are kind of, you know, finding the confidence, I think, to, to do this and they're signing up, which is great. But yeah, having some really interesting conversations in that space that, if I'm honest, I, I wasn't really expecting. I really wasn't expecting to, I think, almost help people understand the need for it, but also help them, almost coaching some people, I think, to realise that it's okay 
to invest in themselves. You know, you're not expected to know everything as a head of learning and development, you know, and it's okay to say that you don't know stuff yet. Mm. Your psychology background as well, or interest coming in quite handy there, I imagine. (laughs) Yeah, very much so. (laughs) It's true that, you know, that kind of nervousness about spending budget, if you flip it the other way and someone would approach a head of learning about, is it possible to have this portion of budget for this program, for my own upskilling opportunity, that's not an awkward conversation to be having. That's something that's probably quite common and usual within certain organisations anyway. So why should that be any different for you as an individual thinking, actually, I want to be able to do this? And you know, there's, there's that element of awkwardness about spending that budget. It's really interesting because if it was flipped the other way around and it was probably one of their team members coming to them, it wouldn't feel as awkward. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, totally. And and the interesting thing is actually, it's a great learning for me as well, because I'm getting quite proficient now at helping people write business cases. <laughs> and it's, it was the one thing that internally, I'd always really value that in a provider that actually, if they can kind of do that hard work for me and help me sell something internally, if I, if I need it myself, that's been quite an interesting journey as well. But yeah, I'm, in, I'm enjoying doing it. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, even when you're looking at your learning and development strategy, and planning that for the organisation, and you've spoken to your key stakeholders, you understand, and the business goals very often everyone else's kind of development needs are mapped out and planned and and lnd are kind of forgotten about and best case scenario you might factor in your own team and and what you can do to make sure that they're you know as skilled as they can but the thought of factoring yourself into that is it's almost unheard of yeah it's strange isn't it well i mean hopefully your program cla 100 will help to start changing that and getting the conversation really going around how are lnd kind of upskilling themselves at the same time i suppose outside of that what are some of the current opportunities within L&D that you're seeing that you know people are talking about that you see up you know, obviously other than CLA 100 that's exciting that's coming up oh god I think there's so much in our industry actually that's exciting I think you know looking kind of forward particularly and into the future I think that the explosion I guess for want of a better word of AI is just fascinating I'm loving every conversation around this I'm loving see people seeing seeing people going through kind of a I suppose they're going through the change cycle with it almost. You're seeing people in different stages from from sort of complete panic to, oh my God, I've just realized it's really cool and it helps me do my job better. (laughs) And it's fantastic. And and I've sort of been on that journey as well and trying new tools. And I really think there are are so many opportunities there and and so much potential. But I I realize, you know, most people on the planet are talking about that as well. And there are probably far better people than me to talk about AI. I do think there is a bit more of an acknowledgement that L&D need to focus on their own capabilities, actually. Um, I am seeing that a lot. And that's not just, you know, from conversations I'm having about my programme, I just mean in the wider community, I'm seeing that, which is great. And I think also belonging to kind of professional communities, but also the fact that people are starting to look more at, and I I think this is probably driven by COVID, people are starting to look at more holistic approaches, you know, and that's something that's always been really important to me. I mean, you might remember, I mentioned at the beginning when I was doing psychology, actually, that sleep deprivation was one of these key topics that I remember so well. And I used to sleep brilliantly when I was younger, absolutely brilliantly. And it's only sort of in more recent years that I don't sleep that well anymore. And I think it's a, it's a cycle I'm in now because I know the, how damaging it is to you if you don't sleep. I'm now stressing out about that. So I'm, I'm, I'm not sleeping. So I'm going around in circles. But actually considering things like that. So are people getting enough sleep? Are they eating properly? Are they getting enough exercise? We really need to be thinking about people's well-being. You, you can't just pile learning onto an organization and hope stuff sticks. You know, there are some foundational pieces that need to be in place and I think one of those is establishing I guess a focus on well-being throughout the organization and I think one of the others is making sure that people understand how to learn before you even start thinking about you know programs and solutions and and training sessions there's some real kind of 
you know, foundational pieces there, I think. Mm. Well-being is a really interesting one because it's it almost needs that kind of expert focus on what is required within a particular organisation rather than just here's an EAP or here's some content around this certain subject. It needs to, I feel like there needs to be a, an educated response to what's needed for certain individuals because otherwise there's a risk that you're just throwing something at a problem and it's not sticking. Is that something that you have felt or have experienced? Yeah, I have. And I've seen, you know, that I think there was this sort of explosion of people getting into well-being as well during COVID. And that's great. And I know it was driven, you know, from the right place. But I think there were too many people that weren't experts in that space probably doing it. And maybe some of it's been a little bit diluted as well. But also, I think the term is so broad. What well-being means to me might not mean the same thing to you. You know, some people will think about exercise and sleep. Other people will think about yoga and mindfulness. Other people will think about financial well-being or how much time they get to spend with their friends and family or whenever they're not connected to the internet. It's so broad well-being and I think to cover it as an organisation you really need, but it's probably not you know one person, it's a few people that are, are kind of specialists in, in a number of those areas. But like everything else, it kind of ends up at L&D's door and I know more and more L&D leaders I know and, and L&D teams are kind of taking well-being under their wing and you know that's now kind of sitting with them too. I had a really interesting conversation with someone at an Aventive event in London who was adamant that a well-being should not and would not ever sit with the L&D team within their organisation and their stance surprised me and the strength of how they felt about how separate they should be but actually from what you've just been mentioning there around almost ensuring people's well-being so whether they're sleeping okay whether they're eating okay how turning up to work would have then if they haven't slept okay if they haven't eaten well how that would then affect what you're asking them to do on a daily basis not only from a learning perspective but from a productivity perspective and surely there's an element of responsibility there that, that lies with L&D to ensure that they're creating environments that allow people to thrive essentially to be the best that they can be on the day not 100% but the best they can be on the day it's interesting where that responsibility falls I don't think it's just L&D's responsibility but I think they've got a part to play in that and whether that's other teams HR teams within the business or mm. whoever else, management, line management, middle management, I don't know, that senior leadership, like it could be anyone that has responsibility for that. I think that's part of the problem is that there isn't necessarily a dedicated team or person within a business that is identifiable as responsible for. But I don't think there should be, but I think people have that hard, like they grapple with with that maybe. Yeah, I think you're right. But I, I also think you're, you're right around you know, the fact that it, it, I think it's everybody's responsibility. I think everybody needs to own it. And I suppose the challenge with having someone specifically in the organisation that, that kind of owns that is it almost makes it okay for other people to say, well, wellbeing's not my space, that's so-and-so's. And, and actually, it's such a big and important thing, much like, you know, EDI, that's, that's, that's something all of us need to care about. It's something that all of us need to educate ourselves on. And it's something that we all need to be mindful of, especially if we're managing teams. And yeah, that's kind of company wide. But it's interesting. I, I mean, there's many debate. I mean, crumbs. There are there are debates around still whether or not L and D should should sit within you know an HR function or not. I'm sure the debate around well being uh, will continue for for quite a while. But I do like that people are talking about it, and I, and I do like that it's it's certainly more visible in conversations than it was you know kind of ten years ago. I take that as a as a good thing. Yeah, it's all swings and roundabouts, though, right? I bet you know, if you're in the industry long enough, you'll see things change and then change again, then come back to where they were originally in the way that like office space has adapted over the years, that it was very closed off 
um, people were in their little cubicles and then it became open plan and then everyone worked from home and now there's that hybrid approach and now people are going back into their little cubicles and you know yeah I always feel like you know there's never things are things can be right people will complain about how they could be better they might change and then they'll flip back to how they were and it's hard to understand what is what is definitely right within the industry it's all one big experiment I think it really is yeah <laughs> So what's the future of CLO 100 looking like at the moment? So what's and what's next for you just to kind of wrap up? So, I mean, well, we're really excited about building this first cohort that goes live in February. So we have all of our contributors on board now as well. So, yeah, we're obviously planning for that. There's a, a lot of preparation that's going into this, but that's that's taking up a lot of time. We're also really excited. We're going to be launching a community based app for L&D leaders soon, too, which I really hope will help kind of a, a, I suppose, a wider spectrum of learning leaders and help them and give them access to not only resources, but keep them up to date with, you know, news trends in the space, but also hear from people that can really help actually some of the contributors that are on the programme, to be honest. So it's important to us to build that community inside or outside of the programme, to be honest. So either way, the community focus is, is really important for us. So, so yeah, that's, that's probably a, our next step. I'd say. Is that for anyone in the industry or is that for people that are on the programme? You don't need to be on the programme, although there is a separate area for people in the programme. But if you're a learning and development leader, essentially, that's that's kind of where we're targeting it. We're hopefully, I mean, you're the first person I've told about it, Helen. So. <laughs> I hate to tell you, Kathy, but I'm not going to be the only person that knows about it after this is released. Um, yeah, so um, yes, I think watch this space. <laughs> um, I'm hoping I can, yeah, I'll, I'll be able to share a bit more about it hopefully in the next in the next month. But yeah, we're certainly very excited about it. You know, I think the idea of community and building a network is important in any area, and I've seen it in you know the women in group that you've pulled together, and I you know I love the interaction there, and that community focus is is just fantastic. It's brilliant, and it's really essential. But I mean, particularly if you're a learning leader in an organisation. You often don't have any kind of direct peers, or if you do, they're also your internal customers. So you can't sort of have that, I guess, that trusted conversation where you're sharing your concerns, your challenges, asking questions, because you want everyone to see you as, as you know, the expert in that space in, in your business. So I think the community piece in, in learning generally is important. But yeah, I'm hoping for the kind of learning leaders, this gives them a safe space as well. Yeah, and it's so important. And as you say, it's something that's coming up in conversation all the time. Many of our customers are, are talking about this idea of how can we establish communities, not necessarily just within Thrive, but you know, outside of that, within their wider business. And then within L&D itself, it's on the tip of everyone's tongues at the moment. But I think there's, it's twofold. So it's that, as you say, it's that kind of requirement for connection, for understanding what best practice looks like, for bouncing ideas off people. But then I still feel like it's an outcome of the pandemic is that people realise that that's actually what they're really valuing most and have maybe lost mm. a little bit of, which is what we're seeing the result yeah. of so many communities being set up now. I do think rightly so. And I think it is something that's going to last and people will really lean in to the value of, of community so it's really exciting to hear that that's a, you know a possibility for CLO 100 and I look forward to hearing more about that once it's released good stuff Kathy well I really appreciate you sharing your wonderful and fabulous journey and experience with me and thank you for your time oh thank you ever so much for having me I really enjoyed it this podcast is powered by Thrive. We're a complete learning and skills platform creating modern learning solutions for modern businesses globally. Check us out.